Hi, I'm Mark Nielski. I'm the author of The Economics of Happiness and my new book, An Economy of Wellbeing. Welcome to the Economy of Wellbeing podcast. I believe the most important aspiration of our life is well-being and genuine happiness. But by happiness, I refer to the original Greek definition, which literally means well-being of your spirit or well-being of your soul. I also believe we have an opportunity to change the consciousness of our world and the planet by rediscovering the true meaning of the words of business and economics, such as the word wealth, which literally means the conditions of well-being from the Old English. In my podcast, I'm joined with some incredible guests and elders to talk about the development of this new economy based on well-being. I wrote about those ideas in my new book, An Economy of Well-Being, Common Sense Tools for Building Genuine Wealth and Happiness. We'll explore many of those topics in these podcasts with some of my great guests. You'll learn how to adopt some of these ideas in your personal life, your business, and your community. I hope you enjoy these podcasts and feel more hopeful about the future. You can learn more about my book, The Economy of Wellbeing, from my website, economyofwellbeing.com. That's economyofwellbeing.com. And you can also purchase my book on Amazon as an ebook or a paper copy, or listen to my podcast and be inspired. Have a wonderful life. Welcome to the Economics of Wellbeing podcast. My next guest is Steph Coopers, who had joined me a few weeks ago uh, from Antwerp, Belgium. Today we talk about his insights into what shall we do next after this coronavirus COVID-19 passes and we are in the midst of what we think will be an economic pandemic. We're already seeing the, the crisis unfolding in the stock market, corrections and people unemployed. What are the options that are before us right now as we are in this pause between these storms? Can we do something creative, new, innovative that will, I hope, rectify the problems that led to the crisis of 2008 and now this unbelievably large and significant economic crisis? Hope you enjoy the podcast and send us your comments, uh, reflections. So Steph, tell me, like, I thought what we do is we would just riff on uh, what's, uh, here we are in this moment of existential economic crisis. And yeah. what are we going to do? What are we going to do next? What's possible? Uh, and that's, that's where I'm having fun with just people talking about yeah. systems analysts and yeah. And you've, you know, you have this brilliant idea of sustainable money and, and, and well, yeah. The first thing we need to do about it is, is kind of laugh with it in a way. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I know this, this may sound harsh for some people because uh, um, and, and it's, it's not to laugh with the people that are in financial trouble right now, but in a way, laugh with all the experts, mm. um, which may sound disrespectful and I, I don't want to be disrespectful to them, but in, in a way, it's, it, it is in a way hilarious because we are currently, so this is coronavirus coming in and we have to shut down everything that is not 
fundamental to our survival. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's a, there's a global panic about the economy. And I'm like, why, why do, are we um, accepting that this is a normal situation? Exactly. I, I would rather say that in a normal situation, if there is a pandemic like this, you shut down everything that is not vital. Essential. That's right. Yeah, essential. And things should be fine. That's right. There's yeah. enough food for us to live for at least a month without supply yeah. lines, right? Probably. It, it, you know, like, um, it's, if, if, you, if you just uh, make a comparison to a household, then it's like, oh, um, we cannot buy a new T-shirt in a month. We're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, that, right. I, I was I was looking out to buying this new T-shirt. I I can now not do that because the shops are closed for a month. I'm not going to die. Right. So the, the economy apparently is. So let's talk about that. As an economist, I know now that say household income or spending is in half. Right. It's fifty percent yeah. probably, because all we're buying, if we're buying anything, is we're going out, you know, with a hoodie on to get groceries. And maybe a bottle of wine, if we, if yeah. still, and someone will hand us a bag through the door. And so, yeah. uh, and in Spain, it's probably more difficult because the police might you know, stop you. But, but the point is that right now, so half of the and half of our GDP is household spending, right? So we know that the GDP is going to contract way more than one percent because we're talking yeah. about one month at least of no, of fifty yeah. percent less household spending, let alone business spending. And, but yet we know we're going to survive. We're, we're fine. Like we're yeah. still, yes, people, because the virus will die. Absolutely. That is, that should be our priority is keep people just stay put. Right. Yeah. But this notion that we should get back to work by Easter, you know, in America shows the, the underbelly of how yeah. fragile the system is. Oh. It's, it's also the, the thing that, and, and this was a quote because uh, in the newspaper here in Belgium, there was a quote from the Wall Street Journal uh, where apparently they said, you cannot prioritize public health so long that it damages the economy. Right. And I'm like, excuse me? Exactly. So, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go like the Aztecs now? We're going we're gonna, to um, sacrifice people on the altar of the economy to please the economic gods? Well said, well said. But it sounds like. It does sound that way, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm going to sacrifice my senior economic life for, for the economy? Like, are you yeah. mad? Like, are you? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. In, in the States, uh, they're, they're projecting that um, if they would just let the virus go rampant, they would ha end up with like two, two and a half million deceased. That's yeah. that's quite a sacrifice to make just so that the economy would survive. Yeah. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was with an interview, and they were interviewing an economist from the uh, University of Antwerp. And she actually always gets upset when people talk about the economy, because there is no such thing as the economy. Mm -hmm. It's a neoliberal economy that we all all accepted as being the economy right but there are a plethora of alternatives 
so so walk us through you haven't got a call from you know the central european whatever authorities and banks and uh in brussels or i certainly haven't got a call from ottawa yet i'm still waiting um what what would we tell them well the first thing is the one thing to look at is just look at your construct of money it's, it's at the basis of everything it's, it's like i think I, I might have told this last one too when we talked it's like building a skyscraper and you're not looking at your foundations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. money is a foundation of this economy the, the, the way it works is what everything else is built on right and, 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 and uh, money is faulty and we could say the foundation is actually the assets that underpin the liquidity right the value stream of if money is a, a derivative of the assets, which it should be, then this is what we're talking about, a foundation. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's the, the, the thing we, we've actually done in our current economy is um, money has taken the place of the ultimate valuable construct. Right. And we're, we're not looking, because currently they're, they're saying like, oh, you know, a big problem for the economy but if you if you look at the real the real economy is production of goods and services, mm. and we are devaluing that because there's a lack of money. But money is just something that we created to facilitate things. But instead of facilitating things, we actually made things more difficult. But we created money in such a way that it became a scarce product that people hoard, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, in our money creation algorithm, what we do is we create money and then we create anti-money, which is debt at the same time. Um, well, bank debt being this, this a special case, because if I, if I say like, I lend you $100 and you now in debt with me for $100, when you pay back, the $100 will still exist. Mm. But when banks create, banks actually create the money. So when a bank creates money, they create anti-money, bank debt on the other side. Mm-hmm. Right, so right. Those meet, they, they annihilate each other. Right, right. The funny thing is, it is really hard to make people understand that simple thing. So hard. And yeah, you, you tried, you tried in your TED, your TEDx talk, uh, which was brilliant, but still it's hard. It just makes our heads hurt, doesn't it? Yeah. I got a um, one person who reacted on a post of mine uh, last week. Fake news. You don't have to. You don't have to believe me. The, the, the references are there. If you say that this is fake news, and you're saying that the Bank of England, European Central Bank, um, the uh, a whole bunch of economists like um, Richard. Um, Damn, I forgot his last uh, and like Mark Carney, right? The former governor. I mean, yeah. he's the one who yeah. said, yes, it's true. Like, he yeah. admitted, they admitted it. Yeah. Uh, Michael, forgot how to admit. I'm so bad at names. Might have been the glass of Ma- Michael Hudson? No, no. No, um, he's a guy, he's, he's uh, the chief um, research officer at the Central Bank of England. He also works oh, okay. for the IMF. Right. I saw a speech of him in, in Stockholm last summer. Mm. And he said, like, the, the idea that people have that banks are intermediaries that lend money from savers is not true. 
true. Are creators of credit money. So help us. So given, let's just keep spinning on that truth. You and I know that truth, and we have to repeat it probably a thousand times for people to understand what we're talking about. Yeah. You're saying we can right now in this crisis, we can create as much money as we need to get through the next one month, 14 days, two, three months. That's not that's not an issue. There's no scarcity in that capacity to do that. One thing I just posted now, for example, if you look at uh, look at our taxes right now, Canadians are filing their right. income taxes, right? And now we've got a deferral till June. They've given us some grace. Now, yeah. in the tax form, is called it's called a basic exemption, right? So, the average Canadian made forty eight thousand uh, dollars in twenty seventeen, uh, yeah. or sorry, twenty eighteen. And so, if we're talking about and the personal exemption uh, for this tax file year was 12, about $12,000. So what does that mean? When you file for taxes, you're 48,000 pre-tax, you get an exemption of 12,000, and then you pay tax on, right, uh, on what's, uh, and other credits you get, of course. So I said, this would be, if we were going to help every Canadian, and I'm not bailing out financial institutions now, I'm just the average Canadian, $48,000, yeah. Uh, uh, that we're talking about an additional tax exemption of say two months of income. So $8,000 immediate uh, right now upon filing, you would actually say, no, we're going to, we're not, we're actually going to give you a credit. It'll be in your bank yeah. account tomorrow. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then people say, well, who, how is that going to get paid for? Who's going to, who's going to create the $8,000 per person? The, the problem is if, if they do it, as they are doing now in the current system, that means that when all this is over, then they're going to come like, oh, now I have to pay. Mm -hmm. but that's, it's been, I, I already saw um, on television, there was a, an economist from the university in Ghent here who said like, yeah, we, now we need to create that money and then afterwards we'll have to pay that back. And I was like, why? Exactly. To who who did we sell who did we sell his debt to? We're gonna create two trillion dollars of helicopter money for the United States. And yeah. then I said, so who holds that debt now? Yeah. The, the the problem that we have in, in the current system is that um because oh that actually there's something I was thinking about today. Um you know in, in economists have this this term cheap money. Mm-hmm. Money is the only thing you can buy with money. It's, it's like going to the supermarket and trying to buy uh, rolls of toilet paper with rolls of toilet paper. Right, right. <laughs> but what you're going to do is you, can, you say, like, I'll give you one roll of toilet paper now, and then I'll, I'll, I'll come and pick up two tomorrow. Right. Which, which is actually what, what the entire money market business is about. It's like we, we'll, we'll buy money now, and then somehow we're going to create more money to pay it off later. That's like, uh, I'm going to buy a roll of toilet paper now, but then I, I'll have to bring in two rolls of toilet paper tomorrow. Thank you. That's a perfect, right? That's a physical metaphor. Perfect. It, it's the entire idea that, that money creation has to go alongside debt creation is ridiculous. Um, the, the problem, the other problem is the, the interest. Mm -hmm. The fact that people have, to have this idea that you can just 
put money into something and then you can get more money out. That you can create money with money. Right, right. That's another yeah. fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. Because that actually creates the incentive for people to hoard money, which in the current system equals debt. And then with that money you hoard, you can create more money somehow. Right. But since all money is debt, that means that all the money you have, someone has to carry the debt. Yeah. And and that creates these these huge inequalities we have in our economy. Now, if you just and, and I know for a lot of people this is this is very hard to just grasp. You just say like, let's just produce money like we produce anything else. I mean, if you produce a roll of toilet paper, there is no anti-roll somewhere that once you bring them together, <laughs> the toilet paper just vanishes. <laughs> produce a toilet paper and it exists. And toilet paper, like any physical um, object that we have, deteriorates. You cannot it's made, hold on it's made from trees. Paper. It'll degrade. It'll yeah, go it'll back degrade. to nature. Yeah. If you do the same with money, then we actually create money the way we create anything else, and it just deteriorates over time. It's a more natural way of dealing with stuff. Money yeah. is the most unnatural thing we have. Well, I, and I've said it's funny that we use the metaphors of, of water for money, right? Yeah. Uh, banks, currency, liquidity, uh, and now we've got toilet paper. So it's like, <laughs> it's like we're flushing it down, and and so yeah. it, it, I, I kind of paraphrase Lao Tzu in the you know Tao Te Ching. It's like money must be like water. Money can't be stored up and dammed because of what happens to it. It doesn't have enough oxygen. It putrefies. So if the money system was based on, you know nature's model water rivers watersheds uh we would have a completely different system it also evaporates i mean you you, you less you put money in the bucket you put the, the bucket outside after a while the bucket is empty because the water evaporates yeah so as we it gets filled up again so one of the things you know you you know i've been talking about is the sustainable money money system that um i think we have we agree upon it in terms of the architecture of it. And, you know, one of the things I've been writing about is can we use nature and nature's laws or just ecological principles uh, to design a new money system? Um, in other words, nature is inherently abundant. Nature will experience a crisis, a virus, a catastrophic fire in a forest and will within five years renew itself. We, I know that as a forester. So could nature become the model for uh, a stable money system in your mind? Yeah. Um, if, if we go back to the metaphor of water, say, um, I've actually been writing a couple of articles about it. I, I think you've seen the, the latest, one of the yeah. latest. So you, you just take the bucket and in, in, at the bottom of the bucket, you, you uh, attach a hose Right. And the host constantly um, releasing adds water to the adding bucket. water. Okay. Yeah. So that that's where your money creation happens. And you just give everyone a bucket, and there's constantly new water flowing into everyone's bucket. Now you can right, right. This will go like, um, but what about inflation? Sure. If you if you don't um, 
if, if that's the only thing you've got, you will have inflation. And we, we, need, we need to fix that. But that's easy. You just drill a couple of holes in the side of your bucket. And the higher the hole, the, the bigger it becomes. And then it will close out. You can, you can even say that the bucket has a, uh, a fixed side. Right, so right, right. completely full, even with the holes, everything that overflows is gone. That's right. That's right. I love that metaphor. Like it, the overflowing is, of course, excess. We don't yeah. need it. We, we can't capture the overflow. So yeah. we're going to figure out a way of elegantly releasing that water in just enough streams. I mean, if you think about yeah. household expenditure, expenditure categories as holes in the bucket, right? Yeah. No, so, no, that's the, 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 the holes in the bucket is, is where you actually take money out of the system. It's not your expenditure. Your oh, right. expenditure it's coming out down at the hose at the bottom of the bucket, right? Yes. What's at the bottom is you got a hose going into the bucket, filling your bucket, and your and the express coming out of the bucket to meet your life needs is what? Where's that coming? Is that coming out of? Well, actually, that's more like you've got your bucket and you say like, okay, I, I'm uh, you've got a grocery store and I want to buy stuff from you. I take a cup. I take some. Oh yeah, you just take some water out. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course. Yeah. Um, the the source coming in is like this magical water creation thing that adds water to your bucket, and the water running out just gets evaporates. It disappears. So I, I have this funny anecdotal story. Uh, our daughter, when she was five, I think, our eldest, yeah. uh, she had this like in, inspiration. And it was during the Gulf War. Um, I think the Gulf, or yeah, it's the first Gulf War. Yeah. And she says, I have this vision, Dad. It's like how we could solve war. And I said, tell me. She says, well, it's like, why, why do people fight? Or what are they fighting over? And I said, well, they're fighting over land and resources. And, and I said, well, what if they, they both have two piles of, uh, you know, stuff and, and they have, each one has a shovel and what they're going to do is they're just going to shovel stuff back and forth. Yeah. And, and that will, that'll be their experience of relationship and trust and, you know, and there's no scarcity. You're just yeah. moving stuff back and forth. And yeah. I said, that's brilliant. Why don't you write this to the Pope? So Pope, Pope John Paul II was still alive. And I, and I said, this is really cheeky. And I said, oh, and you, you, you draw a really beautiful butterfly. So she made this beautiful letter to the Pope and she explained how she would solve, help solve Gulf War, you know, yeah. and uh, sent to the Pope. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. She's never going to get a response. Well, sure enough, she got a letter back with, you know, the paper, wow. watermark paper with the beehive, you know, on, on the, you know, the water, it's watermark paper. Uh, and it's the representative, the Canadian representative of, you know, of Rome. And I'm like, wow, this is un unbelievable that a five-year-old, wow. right, has his insight. And so your description of the bucket is like our daughter saying it's like these piles of stuff that just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, because some people will like, oh, but, but then, you know, what, what about um, if you work hard and then you earn a lot of money? It's like, yeah, but shouldn't there be a limit? I calculated um, a couple last week. I looked at the net worth of Jeff Bezos and yeah. I thought I thought it was at a hundred and thirty billion, right? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So, uh, and this is, uh, I saw a meme on, on, on the internet on Facebook a while ago. And it said like, imagine you start working at the year zero 
and you work eight hours a day and you work 200 days a year, yeah. you yeah. save everything. Mm -hmm. so I, I calculated the hour rate of just Jeff Bezos to earn that amount of money. Oh, I've done that too. Yeah, I did that yeah. for Bill Gates when he was worth $54 billion. Yeah. Back in 2000. I, I calculated his hourly rate and it lies somewhere. I mean, it, it could be a couple of dollars off, but it's about $35,000 an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you would have to work for 2,020 years without spending a single penny <laughs> at $35,000 an hour to have the same amount of money as this one guy does. I mean, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Or, or you could put it another way. You could say if the average person works 40 years, right? Uh, and then calculate that hourly wage that would be necessary to have generated 130 billion, right? Of yeah. savings. Well, there's yeah. just, it's all paper, of course, but, yeah, but no, it's, it's, it's preposterous. And then there was a brilliant um, Danish economist, I think, who he called it the, the parade of the income giant. So he, he uses similar what you just done and said, imagine a 24 hour parade and, and the, the people in the parade are, their, their height represents their wealth, right? Yeah. And, and he says, so he describes his parade. Well, the first 50 minutes of the parade are, are actually people who are, are below ground. Like they're just, you know, because they're already, at, they're, they're making $2 an hour or whatever at best, $2 a day sometimes, right? And then, but at the end, you get these, the Jeffs of the world who are like Empire State Building skyscrapers, yeah. which last about, half a second right and yeah. uh, and then it's <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, and, and don't get me wrong i don't mind people being rich i'm i'm, I'm fine with that but i think there's there's limits um you, you can have uh people that have more wealth than others mm -hmm. but the gap should not be as big as it is today absolutely we, we should all have a decent income yeah. and a decent life. And then you have people that are, have more, fine, that's okay. They, they've, they've, been, they've done uh, research on that, what people uh, experience as fair. And depending on the culture, the, the gap is that the, the highest paid employee in an organization um, earns, I think the lowest was three, factor of three and the highest was a factor of 12. Right, which is another brilliant insight because this is, I sometimes call it Solomon's rule, King Solomon, who said the, the factor should be seven because yeah. of course seven is a sacred number in, in, uh, yeah. in their culture. But, but what's interesting about this and is what this issue we addressed when I wrote my first book, The Economics of Happiness, I said, what, sh what should be that kind of, cultural norm right well in japan apparently it's the norm is 10 to 1 right so yeah. i remember the story that the president of jl japanese airlines was you know retiring and, and they were they were going to give him this massive bonus right yeah. and he said no it's unacceptable I, I can't take this bonus because the people who make this whole business work are the stewardesses and the yeah. baggage handlers or whatever who uh, so this kind of cultural norm cultural sense of uh, equity, right, 
is maybe it's unique to certain cultures. I mean, it's unique maybe to, uh, um, and, and the, the amazing thing is I found when, when I was working in the Alberta government, you know, the ratio of a, the highest paid deputy minister to a clerk entry level was 6.7 to one. I was in, in yeah. 2000. So I'm like, wow, we're actually quite, you know, quite balanced here, but these inequities of 7,000 to one uh, right now that exist in a lot of American companies is just yeah. outrageous. Yeah, and, and, and people do not experience that as fair anymore. No. And but it isn't. Yeah. So this is, a, this is another fundamental question because people will say, well, you know, we, this is our American dream culture. Like we were entitled, Jeff Bezos is entitled to, you know, come out of his garage and now amassed, you know, here's a guy just like Bill Gates, you know, comes yeah. out of his garage and says, suddenly has an idea that is, you know, I said, the genius of these companies is that you and I like the utility of the product. I mean, we like the convenience yeah. of click and get something or, you know, when I open up a word document, it works and it's a function. Yeah. And I, I have no problem with that. But the, there's, the, there's one thing that people forget. Bill Gates had the idea. Yeah. He did not build all the computers. He did not write every line of code. Code, exactly. He did not ship all those products to everyone. He did not deliver them personally to people's doorsteps. Before, I mean, before you could just download it. Absolutely. He had an army of people doing that for him. And everyone's like, oh yeah, Bill Gates, the genius. What about the army of people that made it possible? Yeah, yeah, you're right. If he didn't, yeah. yeah, if he didn't have those hands and feet, the product would have still been a, a great idea. Um, but yeah, and then, then maybe ten people would be using it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in your model, because um, this is the big question often is. Yeah. What's your proposal for the redistribution of this wealth in, in kind of some notion of fairness? You've said that this poll says somewhere between three and 12 is, should be the ratio. So in what, in kind of, what kind of system would have to exist that, uh, Jeff, that 130 billion, that should be an immediate, it could be an immediate redistribution, every American now suffering and, and economic you know, angst. Well, or, or are you saying that, or, or are we kind of imagining a kind of self, uh, a self-imposed distribution that we just do because like the JAL president in, in Japan would have done? I think we, we, we need, I, I like systems that are as simple as possible, um, but not too simple. Mm -hmm. Not so simple that they don't work anymore. Yeah. So the, the system I'm, I'm thinking of is uh, in its simplest form, you um you create money every day or every month or every week granularity is, is actually something something right. that you can discuss. say people are used to a monthly wage so let's say every month every month every month you create money to put on everyone's account so you actually install the host to everyone's bucket say so let's say uh three thousand euros two thousand euros whatever the number yeah yeah whatever yeah. the number yeah now, very important, this is not a communist system. Right, yes. It doesn't mean like, this is the amount of money you get and it doesn't matter what you do, this is the, that's not the case. If you right. work for yeah. someone, you get extra money. Yeah. Just, uh, there's an inflow of money 
uh, at every individual in our society. Yes. Which would mean in, in the case that we are in today, no one would worry about their income because they would fall back on, on, on a guaranteed income they will always have through their entire lives. Right, right. So that's the hose of the bucket. And then you say like, we're going to drill holes in the side of it because we do not want you to hoard money indefinitely. Yeah. Because you, you don't need it. You also want to create a, an incentive. You can, you can hold on to a certain amount of everything below the first hole. Yeah. That's safe from, from um, exiting the body, the bucket through the hole. Right, right, right. So as soon as you, your, your water level in your bucket comes above the, the first hole, you're going to start losing a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. And if it goes higher because through an income, it might be that, that your level rises. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to the consecutive holes and more and more money will start flowing out. That money, in its simplest uh, form of the model, that money just is taken out of circulation. It's gone. Right, then right, right. That uh, your total amount of money in your economy will stabilize. Right, right. It just it scales with your population. More money it, 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 in your population, more money flowing in every month, less people, less money flowing in. I mean, in a way, you could imagine, uh, say, 300 million buckets in the United States. Say there's yeah. that many people. And uh, every bucket's getting filled up. And it's on, yeah. it's on the floor. The floor is the United States land base, right? Yeah. And, and some of that water... Like the, the Bezos bucket is like flowing over, like it's a, it's a flood, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's still on the floor and it's going to be picked up in, if, if you think about the water cycle, right? It'll evapotransport, right? And then become clouds and, you know, it'll rain down again. So it's not, not like we don't expect that to happen. That's what nature does. So whether that money is on the floor, that money, that water's on the floor means it will eventually become part of this kind yeah. of, uh, homeostatic cycle yeah yeah and and then if, if you if you would do nothing with your bucket at one point the water